2: Yes, hello, Six Rings and Football Things fans. We have a very special treat for all the football fans and members of Patriots Nation today as we gear up and get excited for the kickoff of the 2023 NFL season, a new Patriots season, Tom Brady's return, and so much more. We are pleased to be joined today by uh, a voice that will be quite familiar to you, whether you are a listener to the Bill Simmons podcast uh, a fan of WEEI from many a football Fridays, of course, his podcast GM uh, GM Shuffle, correct, Mike?
0: Yes, that's
2: it, GM Shuffle. GM Shuffle, of course, and if you read the National Football Post, and maybe if you're so lucky to have gotten a copy of this and we can't recommend it enough, his latest book, Football Done Right, the one and only, a man who's now a member of the the extended Pat McAfee family joining Pat McAfee's show on Friday. Dare I say, we're in the middle of a, a Lombardi-sance. Ladies and gentlemen, Six Rings is pleased to welcome in the one and only Michael Lombardi. What's up, Mike? Great to have you.
0: Well, Great to be here. Thank you, Fitzy. I appreciate it. It's always great to talk to Patriot fans, so I won't get yelled at for being a Patriots homer on this podcast because I fully confess I am.
2: <laughs> I know. Listen, you got you have a, a dyed-in-the-wool lifetime, almost 50-year-old Pats fan here. Andy, in addition to being my podcast partner, uh, columnist at Weei, and uh, the co-host of the Six Rings postgame show on EEI, worked for Patriots.com, Patriots Unfiltered, and was a member of the organization for almost 20 years as well. So our Foxborough knowledge and passion runs very deep. And speaking of knowledge and passion running deep, Mike, the first thing that struck me when I was reading the book, um, and it's a it's a great read. Now I know a podcast host is supposed to say that right off the top, like, oh, it's a great <laughs> read. Oh, congrats on the book. Um But like, actually, there was a comma missing in the third sentence of the third. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm sure there's probably one of
2: those. Yeah, we're gonna do an after pod with some notes and thoughts. Um, but like, you know, the book is really like a great history lesson. Um, from yourself, like who's a student and appreciator of the game, but also you're a significant contributor to the game, having worked with organizations, Browns, Raiders, obviously the Patriots as well. And you know, football, undeniably America's sport, but kind of to me what struck me was that like in the wake of the loss of somebody who I've considered like one of the great stewards of the game Gil Brandt that reading this book in a lot of ways it's almost like you inadvertently postured yourself now as like someone who's taking the baton from Gil like someone who's left an indelible mark on the game who's teaching people the right way to remember the game you know your, your references to the White Oaks your top 100 and everything else there and when I used to do some a uh, podcast with the late great Don Banks, we used to always say that when you walk into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, a hologram of Gil Brandt should greet you and sort of like guide you through like the history of the NFL and you're kind of par- part of that like that pantheon of people who want to make sure that the legacy and the heritage of the game is learned and appreciated the right way and I think it's terrific.
0: You know, I've been really blessed and, and and I appreciate that comment because Gil has been instrumental in my life. I started in 84 with the 49ers and we were part of a combine uh, back in the day when there wasn't just all the teams together. So it was Seattle, Buffalo, Dallas and San Francisco. We were in a combine and Gil was, as to be expected, kind of ran the combine and his grading system in that combine was my introduction into that scouting wasn't just, hey, I like that guy. I don't like that guy. You know, that there was actually a profession to scouting and there was a grading system. And then he also, which I think has benefited me later in life, he's also taught me how to write reports that I could paint a picture. So in 84, if I went to go watch Jerry Rice play at Mississippi Valley State, I had to paint a picture of what I saw because nobody was going to be able to watch it on YouTube. Nobody was going to watch it. It was 16 millimeter tape and it was very expensive to duplicate. And it was very expensive to have sent to you. So if that report didn't accurately portray the player, you were not doing your job effectively. And I think that helped me become a writer later in life. So I I owe a lot to Gil. I really do. And I, I think I try to pay homage to him. I have a great Gil story in the book. I don't know if you got to that part yet about him at the, at the, uh, at the ice bowl and what he was in the kind of the way his mind operated.
1: Mike. So in the book, you have lists, you have rankings, you have all, you know, contributors to the greatness of the game and, and all of that history. And there's one thing in there that you have that I don't think is controversial, but some of our listeners might find controversial mm-hmm. when you rank the greatest coaches of all time. And um, I've always pushed back with great respect when people just flippantly throw out Bill Belichick's the greatest coach of all time. Well, he's the greatest winner of all time and the greatest champion of all time. But you, I think, give um, an explanation of, of what Paul Brown has meant to the game. Yeah. And I've always, I mean, in, in some ways, I guess it, it's also a time thing. Like Paul Brown was able to contribute to the game because he was creating the game that we know today in so many of the things yeah, exactly. that he did. And Bill follows him and all the other coaches do. But just what were the challenges you as a friend of Bill Belichick and a great Patriot admirer um, not putting Bill Belichick number one and going with Paul Brown?
0: Well, I I think a lot of that, Bill, I think Bill would agree with it. I haven't asked him this question, but, I mean, there would be no Bill Belichick without Paul Brown. I mean, there would be no Bill. There would be no coach without Paul Brown. I mean, he modernized the game. As I talk about in the book, he is truly the Bill Gates of the NFL. He developed Mm -hmm. the operating system. He's Microsoft, you know, and we don't really give him enough credit for what he brought to the table, the scientific – properties that he decided to instill in this i had a guy tell me yesterday who's reading the book who's been in the national football league for 30 years he said i didn't realize that uh, the 40 yard dash was based on a punt and based on you know what i explained in the book you know this guy's been in the league forever and so i i think we don't know how valuable what paul brown did for all of us what he did for walsh what he did for Belichick, what he's done for any guy who hoists the trophy. I mean, the coach of the year award should be the Paul Brown Award. We should honor this man constantly. We don't, and it's a shame. And, you know, we just kind of dismiss him as the, well, he owned the Bengals and his son Mike now. I think it's an injustice because without his ingenuity, without his creativity, we would not be where we were today.
2: Yeah, and I love uh, so in the book for anyone who hasn't had a chance to read it yet or who's looking forward to reading it, the all of the impacts that various outlets like television and the modernization of the broadcast of the game, uh, the draft. You go through the top ten coaches, top one hundred players, Michael Lombardi style with a Deion Sanders bent evaluation, and obviously he's been in the news for a lot of the right reasons, or some may say the wrong recently as well. But you open, uh, you know, I, I know some of the the tenants obviously like of your. Of your references are always pop culture as well, requisite Goodfellas and Sopranos mentions in the book, etc. And you begin with a Shawshank reference, which strikes that sort of Bill Simmons, Michael Lombardi chord with the the white oaks, like the redemption tree that Red goes to in uh, the Shawshank Redemption, and that's the only, pa, Paul Brown is there as well as in the top ten coaches as well. And so for people that are enamored of this game, like. You know, I uh, I grew up loving watching the Chargers on TV as well as the Patriots and other teams because Air Coriel was the first time, oh my God, this team is just throwing the ball all the time. It's Fouts to Winslow. I remember that game with Don Strzok and uh, Dan Fouts growing up and I'm telling my dad, like, this that this made me fall in love with football. It was so fun to watch. And I think a lot of kids now who just see Patrick Mahomes or who play fantasy don't understand where we, like how the game struggled under Hallis But he helped innovate. And then the Browns and other ones pulled it up and made it the spectacular form of entertainment that it is today. Um, And in your top 100, um, which you use, like I mentioned, the Deion Sanders thing to reference, like that the Hall of Fame should be evaluated differently. There should be different compartments of it. The one that struck me as like the ultimate football guy ranking was you had Anthony Munoz at number seven. Now, a lot of people may not remember him, the great tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals, but I thought that was. Bold, and at the same time, awesome. That's the largest human being I've ever met. He shook my hand and he tickled my elbow. His hands were so big. Man was just an absolute legend. Can you explain a little bit about how you put together your top 100?
0: I did it like a draft board, Fritzy. So I approached it like I was building a draft board, okay? And I did it horizontally, which is what you want to do in every draft board. You rank the players one, the best player to the non-draftable player, if you will. And so when you're only dealing with 100, you kind of have who qualifies to get into the 100. And I was working with 150 players, if so. And then I did it I did it vertically, and then I did it horizontally. Like, who would I rather have? Would I want? Like, who belongs in this upper echelon? Like, who's not being talked about in reference, right? Mm-hmm. And then I also knew that there had to be some players that had to be in this rankings that were going to age better than my rankings. Gronk, for example. I think I have Gronk at 61. Gronk's going to age a hell of a lot better. But for right now, that's kind of where he was, you know. And uh, so I I think to me, that's kind of how I approached it. Munoz was from practical, from firsthand experience. Like, I played against Cincinnati. I was in Cleveland. I watched this big, massive man who looked like a dancing bear, whose uniform never got dirty. Right. And I could, and I only could imagine when they would tell me stories about him as the baseball pitcher at USC with his little hat on and this six, seven man standing on the mound. I'm like, I'm not getting in the batter's box against this guy. There's no chance. Like, there's no way I'm getting in there, you know? And so I just thought he was the really, if I were going to build a team, he would be the first left tackle I would draft. Like, that's how I approached it.
1: So taking that approach, uh, a question you've probably been asked a million times, but Sunday evening, Gillette Stadium, Bill Belichick will be coaching the Patriots to open the season, and Tom Brady will be in attendance and getting honored at halftime. Uh, drafting across positions and roles, if you had the number one overall pick in Patriot Nation, would you draft Bill Belichick or Tom Brady?
0: Well, I, I, I would draft them both. And I think to me, <laughs> oh. I think it goes – no, let me explain. Like, let's sure. talk about Asante Samuel for a second. The moron, the guy who comes on and says that Brady, if it wasn't for Brady, you know, the Patriots wouldn't win. It, this is how much research he did with that commentary. The first Super Bowl, the Patriots threw for 134 yards and, and ran for 133. Nobody remembers that. They just remember Brady won. But the the game was won because of how they played defense. The game was won because how they executed all three phases of the game, how yeah. timely their offense was. The last Super Bowl they won, 13-3, to Edelman's the MVP of the game. It takes Josh McDaniels to the fourth quarter to get into 22 personnel to spread them out because Wade kind of had a handle on them. And thankfully, the defense hung in there, and they played a six-man front that basically took away everything Sean McVay wanted to do. So I I don't want to avoid the question, but as I write about in the book, Warren Moon was nobody better than Warren Moon. Nobody was better than that Houston Oilers team. It, you can't. I mean, that's got to be one of the greatest teams ever assembled. And they got to one conference championship game. So I'm not trying to avoid it, but one makes the other. I mean, think about this. Shul is the winningest coach in NFL history. He went four years without going to the playoffs with Danny Marino. I mean, think about that. Nobody, we don't remember. See, we make these comments, and this is what I hope the book will do. I hope the book will stop people from making comments about today without looking in the back, without doing a little bit, just a little bit of research, right? You know, I mean, there's a guy on ESPN who doesn't even have Joe Montana in his top five quarterbacks of all time. Where were you born? Like, what, <laughs> at what planet are you from? Like, seriously. And, and, and I say that respectfully, but I also say it because I was the idiot who made that comment once too. I talk about this in the book. I was sitting with Ernie Acorsi and Steve Sable, and they were asking me for my opinion of the veteran of players. And I didn't have Unitas ranked very high, arrogantly. And then when I finally said, you know what, you're an idiot. Go back and study it. That's how the book came.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Played so hard with no, with next to no, no line and literally threw his arm off to a point where like it was next to no good for the rest of his days. And, you know, I've heard stories from our pal who's a host at WEI, Christian Fourier. He'd say, Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time. And Pat's fan, spoiler alert, you're going to love the end of Mike's top 100. Um, But like Fourier will tell you, like, Tom was the greatest quarterback ever, best football player I played with, the most prepared person, the warmest, most genuine. He said, but nobody threw a better ball than Warren Moon said the man uh, still in his mid forties could throw it with the same kind of heat that he did in his twenties as well. You know, and Joe Montana recently said Tom Brady wasn't the goat that uh, Dan Marino was the greatest quarterback of all time. I, the rush to always rank things a certain way and show biases as opposed to just, you know, giving what is technically, I guess, kind of the unsexy answer, but it's the right answer to me as well. They were the greatest blend together of like, Bill helped unlock everything Tom needed and provided him with to achieve his own greatness. And Tom was the flex seal. He fixed all the holes and gaps and cracks in the system, but also helped B- Bill elevate his idea of what the Patriot way would ultimately be. Tom could be the guy who guided the ship and threw for 500 yards when they needed him to, but also he'd be an effective game uh, through for three. I think 80, it was in Super Bowl 38 when Weiss needed him to sling it in that wild second half, but also, when the defense was dominating and you have Otis, my man Smith and Ty Law and, you know, McGinnis just crushing uh, the greatest show on turf. They didn't need Tom to do that as well. And right, I, and that's just that's just one of many examples um, as to how they worked like in symphony together. But now that we're a couple years removed and we see how difficult it is to build a winning team, how lucky we were to watch what I call the double dynastic run. Mike, do you think? as you go into length about Paul Brown's system, the impact of Bill Walsh as a White Oak and Bill Belichick, do you think those systems helped that they worked and built the game to what they are now, but can some of Bill's principles now that are starting to possibly look a little archaic or flawed, can they work now without talent like Gronk, Edelman and Brady?
0: Well, you always need talent, but I think at the end of the day, you know, what, makes a great coach is still never going to change. You know, the, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of general Mark Welch. He's a, he's the head of the uh, presidential but president Bush school of leadership down at Texas A&M. And he, and he gives a slide in one of his presentations of the a guy, a soldier sitting on a camel. And he says, Bart Decker, this guy, you know, he's, he's, he's a new age guy, but, his principles are always going to remain the same and that's leadership. Right. And so accountability, holding players accountable is still going to be number one. Strategizing the game week to week is still going to be a part of it. Right. Getting players that love the game and buy in is critical and character players that understand the importance of team and not I, those are never going to change. Those are never going to change. You know, Deion Sanders is the sensation of college football today. And Dion, if you really know who Dion is, he does all those four things. Now, he does it differently. He doesn't wear cutoff sweatshirts, and he doesn't look like he hasn't shaved in two days or showered, but he, but he holds players accountable. He's demanding on his coaching staff. He, he wants to be the new age, but he does it differently. And I don't think Bill's style is going to change. It didn't change for Brown. It didn't change for Walsh. It's not going to change. The way to win won't change. The manner and the style of how you do it might, but you're still going to need that. How many teams have we watched that haven't had that connectivity, the sense of belonging that is needed from the leader? And part of this book is to try to get players to understand that you represent something bigger than yourself. That's why when you go in the Patriots cafeteria and you see all those pictures of ex-Patriots on the wall, you better know who they are because if you represent them too,
1: Mike, I don't know if people are aware of this, but obviously longtime executive, you're an author, you're an analyst, but you've also uh, made that modern leap that I guess everybody is into the gambling world. And so I wanted to yeah. transition as we talk about, be, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Patriots this year, their expectations. The number is seven and a half. Um, there's a lot of opinions floating around. I see these numbers that the over is maybe the best, most bet on bet in all of sports right now. If you read some of the books and their emails. Um just what are your expectations from this Bill O'Brien comes back, Mac Jones, can he get back to rookie year production Patriots team that we're going to see starting on Sunday against the Eagles?
0: You know, I I think the Patriots look, you know, the one thing about the media uh, is they run with a story without any facts to it. And, and your record is what your record is. Right. But if you really study that Patriots season last year, you know, they are four or five plays away from being a legitimate playoff team. Now they weren't good enough. And, you know, we know the problems that they had offensively, but defensively they were – they turned the ball over. They were opportunistic. I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the turnover in New England, the cost of the game, the turnover against Cincinnati, the black punt in Minnesota, on and on and on. But I think they have a good core of a team. And I think Mac has to really protect the football. His rookie year he averaged 2.5% interception. Last year it was the same number, 2.5. He can't be sloppy with the ball one of the tenets of the Belichickian program is we have to avoid losing before we win. And they didn't do that last year. They didn't do that. They turned it over way too much. I think they will. I don't bet. You know, the one thing I see my job as is I don't see it any differently than when I was in the league. I handicapped teams. I handicapped teams. When I was in the league, I handicapped teams today. And so for me, it's just the same. Now the seven and a half, I don't think Belichick's going to – you know, I think his team will get better as the year goes on. I think his team will improve. I think they'll get more comfortable. They'll find out who they are. They have a – they're really good in the kicking game. They're really good on defense, even though people dismiss the kicking game. Here's one, though, you know, we talk about old school. People dismiss the kicking game, okay? The Chiefs don't win the Super Bowl without the kicking game. Because the kid – you know, Sky Moore returns that punt against Cincinnati – and they get the penalty that tax on 15 yards, or else they're not kicking that game winner. They don't win the Super Bowl if uh, Tony doesn't return the punt. So, like, it's still an important part of the game. And they'll be good in that area. They'll be better in that area. And I think they'll be better on offense. They've got to fix the line. I think the one thing about the team is they've got to fix the line. And Brady, when he played, was so good at being able to play behind a line that wasn't elite at times. This, they, Mac Jones isn't quite that level.
2: Yeah, you mentioned earlier about Munoz, like if you were building a team, uh, you would start by picking him at left tackle, which is a huge thing. I remember the Jacksonville Jaguars' first pick when they started their franchise was left tackle Tony Baselli. Oh, how I wish the Patriots went after a big left tackle this offseason, because I think it would have fixed a lot of their issues. And you mentioned special teams and kicking. This two guys right here, two football hardos who have spent a large portion of the offseason talking about what a difference Going, you know, you lost yardage last year when Jake Bailey wasn't on kickoffs. And then it was Nick folk. That was like a 10 yard loss. Michael Polardi, 10 yards less on the punts as well. Uh, Marcus Jones added a lot, but then those two kickoff returns, you give up uh, in Buffalo when that team was almost begging to lose. And the Patriots would have right. vaulted into the playoffs. Like those little things do make a difference. And I just wanted to wrap with sort of a football done right. esque question. Um, so we know where the game has come from. That's hopefully helping people learn the, what's made the game so great. But who do you think, like, let's say football done right 20 years from now, who will be some of the additions from the modern NFL that you'll be talking about 20 years from now have also influenced the game?
0: Well, I think we'll talk about what Belichick did. I think we'll talk about Andy Reid's ability to adjust his team and find quarterbacking. I think there's no question about that. I think Andy's got a unique ability to change his approach. And I think we'll start to see more of an evolution going back to the the single wing. I think the six-back offense that we're seeing with Jalen Hurts, which you were going to see in New England on Sunday, is a variation of of the wing. You know, the quarterback gets the snap, he runs. Jalen Hurts, his yards per attempt went down. His rushing attempts went up. But the threat of a run from the quarterback is going to be part of the NFL game. There's still going to be a place for the guy that can throw from drop back. But I think 20 years from now – I wrote about this in gridiron genius. I could see two quarterbacks in the backfield at the same time that can both throw and both run. I really see that. And that's what the single wing was. I mean, when you go back to Arnie hammer and, and seat uh, at the Packers with curly Lambeau, that's what they had. Now they were throwing a football that looked like a goddamn volleyball, but you know, that's what they had.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think and, uh, uh, Andy's a huge fan of Andy Reid as well, and thinks that the gap is being narrowed between Reid and Belichick as well. I think he deserves a lot of love too. And well, listen, we yeah, could do this.
0: Andy, Andy's interesting because Andy's so good he overcomes Andy. He's right. so good he overcomes Andy.
1: Super Bowl. <laughs> Wait, this <right>? one. <laughs> Wait, me or Andy no. Reid? <laughs> yeah, Andy Reid
0: is Super Bowl. He Andy doesn't pay any attention to the middle eight whatsoever. The Super Bowl, he gives three points away to the Eagles. Remember, they got the ball with like 220 to go at the end of the first half. Go back and look at the game book. Uh-huh. And he goes three passes incomplete, and he punts it back to Philly. And now Philly kicks a field goal. And Philly would have scored a touchdown if they had just a little bit more time. And, but yet he overcomes it. He comes out the second half, and he goes, scores seven points. I mean, he has this unique ability to overcome some of his – and he doesn't really change his approach in the middle eight. He really doesn't give a crap about – or the end of the game. So I, you try to take your hat off to him about that. he still finds ways to win even though he's unconventional.
2: Yeah, we've been talking all season about how it's going to be. You'll see a more competent and, and confident Patriots team, and that should be a very compelling season as well. And hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up with you again later, Mike. Uh, it's been Thank an you. absolute pleasure. Uh, the book is Football Done Right. It's available now. Make sure you grab a copy. You can follow Mike at M. Lombardi NFL, and, of course, catch him every Friday on the Pat McAfee Show. Uh, it's been a thrill, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us here on Thank Six Rings and so Football. Things. Have a great season. Thanks,
0: Thank you. man. Thanks, guys.